This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler. Oh! <laughs> it's a great Stop, start. Casey. <laughs> I'm not cutting that out. I'm Dave Etler. Let's not bury the lead here, though. I'm accompanied by my storied co-host, these princes, princes and princesses of medical education, these riding, rising stars of medicine doctor. I'm sure that's how you pronounce it in Latin. <laughs> these men and women as brave as those in stories of old. Say hello to Amy Young. Hello, hello. Oh, can I say hi? Or yeah. Th- okay. Yeah. Been hello. So, it's been too long. <laughs> Say hi to Casey McCleary. I'm not even supposed to be here, apparently. <laughs> Say good tidings to Lisa Weir Maves. Hi. I'm going to use your full, my full legal married name, name. <laughs> and Buonasera to Teneme Kone. Hey. We may be joined by Aline Sanduk later. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave her out of the intros. Thank you for coming. Last week, I promised some national info on Match Day, so let's uh, let's go through some stuff. Uh, according to the NRMP, the National Residency Matching Program, uh, the 2018 residency match, there were um, 37,103 active applicants for 33,167 total positions. Uh, 78.3 applicants matched to uh, PGY1 positions, which are, define for me please. Wait, 78.3%? Applicants matched to PGY1 positions. So that's your very first year or intern year of residency. Yeah, anything, yeah. any residency, basically your first year okay. of residency. But you're saying and percent, that, not not 78.3 people. Percent. Okay, that's why I was really confused. <laughs> Did I say people? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. you just said 78.3. You said it like three. twice, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that's that how it feels. Of a to those. <laughs> <laughs> we have a massive doctor shortage. <laughs> uh, 96.1% of PGY1 positions were filled. Postgraduate nice. year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, let's see. There were 260 more allopathic seniors this year, 838 more DO students and graduates, 838 more U.S. DO students and graduate graduates, 123 U.S. citizen IMGs, international medical graduates. Those are people who are from the U.S. and maybe went to a foreign medical school. 148 more non-U.S. citizen IMGs. Um... Wait, that's all? Like only 148? More than last year. Oh, more than last year. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, primary care accounted for, let's see, positions filled by U.S. allopathic seniors, so only MDs. Um, 42.4% internal medicine, 44.9% family medicine, 63.1% pediatrics. Nice. And those are all considered primary care mm-hmm. specialties. So is OB/GYN, right? OB/GYN. So OB/GYN is interesting, and we'll get to this because state. we are not. We consider OB/GYN primary care, but other schools do not. Mm. So keep that in mind. Um, what other numbers do I have here? Yeah, that's true. That matters because there are some. There's like the National Health Service Corps or whatever yeah. that 
will give scholarships for primary care right. positions. And I think they also include psychiatry. They include psychiatry, but I don't think they include OB. They don't include OB. Okay. Yeah. I so, don't think, and I don't quote me on that because I don't know going to OB, so I don't know. That's really yeah, fair. I, mean, when you're, I think the, the message here is when you're comparing numbers, you got to make sure to know yeah. what numbers are what. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds good that primary care seems well represented. Mm-hmm. Although I think you have to take those with a grain of salt because how many internal med people go into fellowships and yep. the same thing with PEDS. So yeah. that's true. I Actually, I don't think PEDS do fellowships as often. Not as often as internal med, but there's still a but sometimes number. They do, yeah. yeah, internal med tends to specialize pretty heavily. I yeah, um, yeah, that's called. I think that's what's known as the dean's lie. In <laughs> um, in in medical Ooh. education, the the dean's lie is that you know everybody goes into primary care. Uh, what about pathology? I, I don't. <laughs> I'm sure it's on the list there, right? I'm not sure I have that number here. We did have tons of family med people this year. Do you know? Like just straight up family med. People. You're, you're oh, going into. Cool. Um, so from uh, it's always pretty low, but from Iowa we had eight eight pathologists yeah. go into yeah. pathology this year, which is yeah. huge. Yeah. And and Lisa, you're going into med psych. I am the only one, but we had nine people go in the categorical psych, which mm-hmm. I think is the biggest number I've seen since I started here. Yeah, that's so. huge. And Casey, neurology. Neurology, I finally made it. What? Uh, awesome. What do you know anything about uh, those numbers? No, that's all right. <laughs> I know that it. I think t- there were five that went into neuro, something like that. Yeah, and we had we yeah. had one neurosurge this year, which yeah. was kind of cool. Um, that's an eight-year program. He just likes to be in school. He's, say, he's already been in school he's one of my for like eight years. He's already <laughs> been in school for eight years because he was MD-PhD. <laughs> he's you know just what? never leaving. You know what my wife told me? This is a little side note. My wife told me that... I don't Okay, so I don't think this is... I, I can I could talk about this. My wife told me that one <laughs> of... Dangerous somebody, game you're playing. Uh, one of her students was deaf. One of her sisters. So she's an audiologist, and one mm-hmm. of the students that she worked with over mm-hmm. in audiology was deaf he is now a surgeon Ooh. deaf surgeon oh does he have a cochlear implant he does have a cochlear implant cool that's, that's awesome badass. um that's cool. i think that's pretty cool yeah that's yeah. fantastic uh he will I, I think he's going to be a surgeon this this year so he's you know mm-hmm. he's like, oh like you guys. just matched yep nice i think that's what she said i i found out that my research professor's uh kid matched into neurosurgery program at the same place I did. Oh. <laughs> so I guess I'm going to be friends with his kid now. There I don't go. know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. There were 1,268 unfilled positions. It's down 11 from Whoa, last year. Unfilled? But don't we have like a physician? Is that unfilled after the scramble? What? Yeah, there are programs that don't participate in SOAP and they can <sighs> fill positions after. So there are people like if you didn't find a position, I think you can still actually apply for some of these. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, 1, they don't, they don't tell you that. <laughs> no, you don't have to participate in SOAP if you don't want to. 1,171 positions were offered in SOAP and they were. And so those are unfilled positions offered in SOAP. So I think that's pre-SOAP, that okay. number. Um, Soap and scramble are the same. Scramble's like the yeah, old name for it. Yeah. They right. try to get us not to call it that, but it's totally a scramble. Yeah. <laughs> Supplemental yeah. offer and acceptance program. So how many were filled after the scramble? Or after soap? Um, I don't know that I have that here yet. They call it soap there, this is it all preliminary. in your mouth. This is all preliminary <laughs> numbers too, because they're still, you know, apparently working on that. Um, 96.2% of positions were filled. Um, so that's nice. There were 43,909 registered applicants, 37,103 applicants submitting program choices. 
Yeah, you have mm. to register for Eris in like November, but you aren't required to submit a rank list. So ultimately, you could decide not to, yeah. and maybe ex- or maybe if you didn't get any interviews or for whatever defer reason, defer a yeah. match or yeah, yeah. 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 I think you already spent the money on. <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs> still, RMP, but you can still soap or scramble if you didn't get any interviews, right? You no, just can't well, I don't know. Submit a rank list if it... you didn't get any interviews. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that works. That would be that would be a difficult situation to be. Because I got some interviews. So. Well, I mean, I suppose <laughs> technically you could submit a rank list without any interviews, but no, you, you can't rank can't a place a you haven't interviewed at. Really? Because they have. No. Yeah, you could. I'm, well, no, no, you can't. You can't. Uh, I did not match. try that. I only added. It was too much work to add anywhere else, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to match there anyway. So <laughs> it's true. Couples match. Ninety-five point eight percent matched oh, for the good. couples match. So. Uh, there were 1,165 couples submitting program choices. Couples so. match is like the scariest concept. Yeah, because like, if you don't oh know, God. yeah, if you don't know, you have to, um, basically both couples have to sort of coordinate their their rank lists. Uh, it's 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 like it's like poker. So it's like very strategic or something, you know, like Yeah, there are different iterations. So if like Casey and I were couples matching and Casey's a. like, I want program A in Chicago, <laughs> then we could have a thing where like Casey's at program A and I'm at program like A, B or C in Chicago and you know, those would be on the list and it could be like, Oh no, now Casey's at program B, I could be at like A, B or C. So it's very complicated and yeah. I can't decide if it's worse to do that or worse to like just match in separate years and yeah, you hope, you and hope the odds are in your favor. <laughs> you and Matt Matt graduated a year ago. Yeah, and uh, you uh, obviously are going to graduate this year, so you had to go through that whole not the non couples couples matching. Yes, craziness. Is he here? He's here, right? He's yeah, here, he's yeah. here. Okay, good. And Which so, was great here because so... I know these people. Yeah, I get to stay yeah. another five years. Um, but at other interviews, when it would come up, they're like, "Oh, so what does your husband do?" And I'm like, oh, "Well." He's stuck at Iowa for a few more years. <laughs> I voted for you to be the UI lifer. I think I mentioned that. I actually that. didn't even go to the slideshow, so That's I don't know hilarious. who got it. <laughs> you guys are talking about the uh, the the we did most likely, most yeah, likely. yeah, yeah. Went home and took a nap. <laughs> it's a good call. So those are some statistics on uh, Match Week. Uh, I got a uh, we got a listener question about all of this. Um, he or she didn't include their names, so I'll call them. Lavender Angel Blood Poison. <laughs> oh, that was my email in middle school. <laughs> I did actually have a GeoCities website called Lavender Illusions. Yeah. So it's pretty close. That's sweet. I wanted to thank you for spending your time podcasting. If it wasn't for the podcast, I might not have even applied to CCOM. Most people on the West Coast, including myself, don't know very much about Iowa. I was fortunate to be accepted to Carver College of Medicine in December. I was looking at the match data from this year and I noticed CECOM has a high percentage of students going into primary care, 45% of graduates. I was wondering what about CECOM makes so many students want to go into primary care? That's a fine question. What do you guys think? Mm. I think take that with a grain of salt and consider people going into fellowships because I feel like a good number of people going into IM and even a decent number from here that go into Pete's end up doing fellowships. But yeah. A lot of people yeah. go into family medicine. Though. Family med, we do. But they, it's not like the 45% is not like all that. Yeah, I mean, it's as we little, said, because it's I a little skewed. I think this year, oh God, I'm going to have to, was like 19 went into Pete's and like 27 or something went into internal med. And so like those like really skew the numbers upwards. I guarantee you not all of those 27 in internal med are going to do primary care. I don't even count in that 
I'm a completely different statistic, I mm-hmm. guess. But anyway. you are nothing. Yeah, you're weird. So I, I, I don't know how that compares to other graduating classes, but I do think that um, since a lot of the student body are, is from Iowa, and if they are interested in primary care or rural medicine, we have a lot of opportunities for that. Yeah. And I know that a lot of the students that do match in family medicine do um, residency in like smaller towns in Iowa. Yeah. 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 We have a we have a specific program. The uh, there's the scholarship. Seacom Rural yeah. Iowa Scholars Program, um, which seeks to address physician shortages in rural uh, rural Iowa. So that's you know that's something that we pay attention to when people come in and they say you know I, I want to practice in in rural Iowa. That's like that's a that's a bonus. Um, we don't select people. I'm told that we don't select people uh, explicitly based on their is interested in future specialty. Oh, it'll totally change, most likely. Y- yeah, I mean, there's no point. Not necessarily. I made it. I made it all the way through, and I'm <laughs> doing neuro. <laughs> no, you, you thought you were going to do psych for a while. No, I, I was going back and forth, but I've always wanted oh. known I wanted to do cognitive behavioral, and I just didn't know which way to get to it. Mm. I came in wanting to do family med psych, and now I'm doing internal med psych. Big shift. That's I, pretty, <laughs> I count that. I count that. I did not even consider pathology as like a career option at all. Mm-hmm. So... Because you wanted to, you. I thought I would needed to see patients. You know, in my head, I had this idea of what physicians did, and it involved being in clinic and holding a stethoscope. Yeah. Things like that. Not writing notes. Hey, Tanamir, what do you want to do? You haven't Um, talked at all. Yeah, I haven't really talked at all. (laughs) It's all been match stuff, so I'm still not really. That's not quite on my uh, horizon quite yet. Um, But hmm, if you matched today, what would you? If I matched, so. I'm starting to like path more and more. Yeah. But I'm still Uh-oh. but I'm still like really bad at it. So 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 it's like in in a perfect world if I was good at path, I think I would definitely consider that. I think you look into doing the path externship that we have yeah. here cuz you like it. I Dave's looking at me because like 2 days ago I did I was on an info panel for the short coat and or was it where was I when I talked about were, it? I I don't know. Was was learning communities, right? Let's pretend that that's true. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling somebody, <laughs> I was telling Dave, I, I barely passed pathology when I took it yeah, during she, my second year of medical school. Yeah, they had a whole path course, like, wow. not yeah. embedded in other. And I, I remember, like, on one of the exams, like, the cutoff for passing was 70, and I got a 74%, and I was like, yes, I studied yes. four percentage points too hard, you know? And, <laughs> and I, like, barely passed it, but then, like, you know, through the course of my training, things started to click, and I... Uh, you know, I really got interested in molecular pathology. And so it really just took off. And when I interviewed for residency, no one ever asked me like, oh, well, why'd you only get a P in pathology? And so I wouldn't worry too much about it this early on if you're really interested in it. Yeah, you could apply for the path externship and just see where it takes you and if you really like it. Did it's you? awesome because it's like diagnostics. Yeah. Like, like they, they don't have it, you know, like, and I'm interested in cancer. So yeah. It's cool how how you can just kind of uh, uh, like look at it and be like, okay, this is what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, not a, yeah. There's not a whole lot of. I mean, th- there is a whole lot of like, yeah, uh, nuance, but yeah, it's it's it. nice how it's more like, okay, I, I see this, I've seen this before. It's probably this. A lot yeah. of things change too as you go into like clinicals and take yeah. other classes and just get like a wider range of knowledge. That when you go back, you're like, oh man, this would have made so much more sense. That's so like radiology. True. I don't know. Did you, I didn't take anatomy with you guys. Uh, any of you guys I don't uh, like there were all these radiology images on some of the anatomy practicals and I would just be like 
Hmm. That's a bone. It's in the abdomen. <laughs> there are like 40 <laughs> million things in the abdomen. I'm just going to guess one of them. Uh, but now, like after taking, you know, like the radiology, the two week radiology yeah. here is actually amazing. Um, they teach, you know, kind of step by step what you're looking for. And now I actually can like sort of know what I'm looking for. And it's just not a stab in the dark, literally. <laughs> I think your additional time as an MSTP student um, gave you more chances to develop a love for pathology. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, what else? We have a, an ambulatory care block of clerkships that's 12 weeks of experience in community <sighs> health care, which some people love and some people don't. I did not do it. I had oh. such a good chance to love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it does give students a, you know, a, a really deep exposure to, you know, what it's like to work in community health care and primary care. I'm sure it's great clinical experience. Yeah, you I'll, didn't, you didn't have this. to do it because you were an MSTP student, and MSTP right. students don't have to do that one. Right. So I've, I've heard most people have a fine experience once they get to their spot. I've heard of some people, like, not getting, not necessarily getting along with their preceptors quite as well, like, especially sometimes people from minority groups um, will have trouble in the smaller towns. Um, but for the most part, people <laughs> yeah. have, no, it's just being honest, like, but for the most part, people have a pretty good experience. And like, I really liked the people that I worked with once I was there, but I was really salty that, um, that I like got placed so far away that I got placed there very suddenly with like, no time to prepare or no time to try to convince them to change it. Um, and there is like no way to, to try to convince them to change. You just preference things. And then if you don't like it, like tough titties. Yeah. I don't know. Once well, I, once I was there, like it was a good experience and yeah. yeah, it is what it is. Right. Very mixed feelings. Congratulations <laughs> on being admitted to CECOM. Yes. <laughs> hey, there, other schools are not, I mean, every school is going to have. I think you're absolutely like this, right. I mean, like, the, this is the, not unique to us. The truth about medical education is that it is traumatic sometimes in many ways <laughs> it is inconvenient in many ways very you know? inconvenient and uh and that's just how it is D uh, uh dean asprey suggested that our oh wait I'll start we, do, here. we do better than a lot of places i think dean oh, cooper yeah. pointed out that we have a very popular family medicine inch student interest group um which is yeah. very active in things like uh procedure you know like holding procedure clinics and STEM volunteering, basic life support mm -hmm. classes. So that might be a reason why a lot of people, you know, develop an interest in family medicine. And Dean Ashbury suggested, and, and I this was news to me, our family medicine faculty are a lot more integrated in curriculum leadership here hmm. than as course directors and things like that than at many other schools. Um, it's true. Like Dr. Burgess is like, head hot. I love Dr. Yeah. Oh, can I just say I love Dr. Burgess? Oh, He's like my favorite like faculty in all of med school. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, side note. But. Family, <laughs> nationally, he feels family medicine might be sort of de-emphasized as a component of leadership mm. um, for various reasons mm. that he didn't. Well, they tend not to practice at major universities, which is where a lot of the leadership Academic is. medical centers, right. Right, right. I mean, they tend to be out in rural communities and stuff like that. And then, I mean, I don't like it. It's, it's a lower paying specialty. So the people that go into it tend to be really passionate about patient care. And not as likely to go into administration would be my guess. Yeah. Um, like really passionate about actually working with patients. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know for a fact that that's the case, but that's kind of how it seems. Well, I gotta say, you know, curriculum leadership is 
Not that, not that, is, not that ac- academic people are not passionate about. <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. They're passionate about something slightly different. You know, yeah, like, they they do approach it in a different way. Acad- you know, if if you're a if you're a course director or in our we have something called strand directors, which oversee various you know larger portions of the curriculum. That is an incredible amount of work. That mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's just so crazy how much time and energy and effort they spend into making sure that everything aligns and, and, you know, when, when things come up that don't align, how to fix it and just like nitty gritty things like room scheduling and like, and, and all that factors into it. And, um, so you gotta be, you know, something special to have that be a passion. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I think those are some of the reasons why it looks like we have a strong primary care contingent here at the College of Medicine. The numbers don't quite tell the whole story, but hey, man, welcome to the College of Medicine. Woohoo! Yay! Um, I hope you'll come and podcast with us. Woohoo! We don't hold auditions. <laughs> Clearly. We- <laughs> Wait, did he or she say they were coming here, or yeah. they were yeah. accepted? Yeah. All right. Sweet. They are well. Actually, I thought, Dave. Dave. Accepted. Dave. I, I thought it was just accepted. Accepted. But hey, maybe you will. No, call call I him hope, out. I call hope, Dave out. Yeah, <laughs> do <laughs> no one else. Wait, do we know it's a he? No, it it's could be a lavender angel lavender. blood poison. That's all we know. Yeah, you guys. Is their their legal name. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you may remember uh, listener Meldor, who's called in a couple of times. Uh, she sent in this update. called twice before and it didn't leave my name. Uh, once I spoke in a robot voice asking about gap year jobs. And then the next time I called because I was rejected from the University of Iowa. So I know in one of them you named me Meldor, which was really funny. But anyway, uh, my name is so I kind of wouldn't like that being on the podcast though. Um, and I just was calling to say thanks so much. And um, I was accepted to the University of Kansas MD PhD program. So I'm really excited to be joining all of the guys in the medical school world. Kind of sad they don't have a full podcast like you guys though. So thanks. You guys are awesome. Bye. Congratulations! Congratulations! Start her own podcast. Yeah, start your own. Absolutely, you could you could do an MD PhD podcast. I think that would do a call in too if she wanted. Uh, Won't be as good as this one. Like a, you mean like uh, <laughs> calling in to uh, be our correspondent from Kansas? Yeah, oh, that yeah. Would be yeah. That, would be that would be interesting. Call in for our Kansas Kansas update segment. I like <laughs> I like to think Live that I like to think that Meldor was like, you didn't take me. But I got into Kansas. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I think we probably missed out, Meldor. She's going to go publish some, like, nature papers. And yeah. It's like, you, Iowa. <laughs> yeah. What what can she expect as an MD, PhD student in general, Amy? <laughs> I would say, you know, life is going to, it's a, a long program and all kinds of things in life are going to, you know, come at you. Things don't necessarily uh, things don't stop or you can't press pause. Um, don't get too frustrated during graduate school. It's a common time um, for people to get frustrated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, get why, why do you get, why do you get so frustrated? Um, I, I, I guess there's different reasons for different people, but in my experience, it's a little bit demoralizing just because your experiments keep failing and you mm-hmm. just kind of feel pressure to come back and, and you just your you know all your classmates have gone on and are like in residency and so it can just be a little frustrating 
Um, and then when you're transitioning back into clinic, there's this, you kind of have this perception of like, well, I don't <laughs> remember anything from the first two years <laughs> of medical school. Um, so I would just say, hang in there yeah. and uh, <laughs> take care of yourself. Uh, and that can mean different things at different times. Um, but self-care is always good. Um, and in, also enjoy it because now that I, I actually graduated now, mm -hmm. so I'm not a student anymore. It's possible. I graduated in December. Um, I'm really happy and I, you know, I got, you know, I'm really happy with my residency match and I'm really looking forward to my career in molecular pathology. And so. Do you care to mention where you, where you matched? I matched at the University of Colorado mm. in, in oh. Aurora. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yep. So and how is your student loan status? <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't have any. Oh, man. MVP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm 35. Yeah, <laughs> there's the downside. <laughs> yeah, I went to a, a debt management thing earlier in the week. Were you at that? No. It was so scary. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, here's the 10 year payment plan, and here's the 25 year payment Ooh, plan. And I can't afford I was either like... <laughs> of those. Yeah. I don't. I is, 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 is the income based option still there? Yeah. It okay. Is. Yep. I was reading like it was. A lot of uh, there is like talk getting, about changing them yeah. and limiting the amount of loans that are forgiven because for most income based after you make like 25 consecutive payments oh, it's or more something than like, like that no 25 years sorry of like yeah. okay. payments um they forgive the rest but now with more and more people having more and more school debt they're they're, thinking they're talking about, about adjusting that there's like it's five the different budget bills there's like five different plans yeah for loan repayment they're all really confusing there's kind of a good calculator on the aamc website um they'll help you figure it out but it's gonna suck no matter what yeah we have said it on the show Just take out as few loans as you possibly can yeah keep and and keep living like a resident yeah. Um, Wait. No. What? Just give like. Yeah. Live like a student like a as a student resident. Live like right. a resident as an attending. That's what, <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going for, and you'll pay it off quicker than you think. Aline oh is here, apparently taking over for Come Tenement. On, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you for letting Good luck me on join. Your test. You don't need luck. You got this. Aline, welcome. Uh, <laughs> well. And and Aline, we should say Aline is uh, in the thick of the graduate phase. Yes. Uh, in fact, yes. she was not able to make it for the beginning of the show because she was doing graduate phase things. Like yes. experiments? <laughs> experiments. Um, we had a comps mock defense this morning. Oh, nice. So for those who don't know, maybe who are listening, um, your comprehensive exam is kind of like the step one of grad school um, where you have this intellectual exercise where you have to propose a question and then basically write a plan for how to, you know, um, how to answer it and um, first you submit an abstract and then a full proposal if they like your abstract and then you have to stand in front of six people and defend your proposal and so I'm also writing for that now so that sounds terrible but it also sounds way less bad than um, my my roommate is an English PhD student and uh, she's actually gonna quit and do the mat just a master's but she was talking mm. about comps and they just have to read like a crap ton of books just like tons of books and like commit all this stuff to memory so that people can like grill them about Quizzle. all of these historical books. It oh. sounds terrible. Like this sounds at least kind of fun and like yeah. creative, you know, maybe you fun's can... not the right word, but it's more creative. No, I agree with you. The second I forget that I'm being evaluated, I do kind of enjoy it. Like it's, a, it's a cool opportunity to like, you know, put your brain out there and kind of flex your muscle. Yeah. But then when you realize that like, 
being able to stay in grad school depends on doing well at that thing. It gets a little anxiety provoking. They want you to, I mean, they're there to support. I mean, you know, your committee wants to see you do well. Yeah. They want you to pass, but they're not going to make it a walk in the park. Usually. I mean, that's for the best. Yeah. I just want just anybody running around with PhD, I guess. So. Fair no enough. Imagine the havoc, the havoc they could There's cut. already a few out there. <laughs> the intellectual havoc. Yes, for uh, sure. Do, do you uh, do you find yourself frustrated at times with the the pace of graduate school in terms of like, you know, oh, I've got this experiment that isn't working or... Yeah, for sure. There's a lot less uh, built-in metrics for... Um, telling you whether or not you're successful in progressing. Whereas med school, it's, you know, it's very clear if you, if you studied appropriately, you did well on the test, then you move on to the next exam. And so it's very paced and you get pretty consistent feedback about how you're doing. But in grad school, um, figuring out how you're doing or how you're progressing is a little more nebulous. And depending on the mentorship that you're getting or, um, you know, coursework doesn't really reflect that, right, Amy? Would you say uh, coursework in medical school? In grad school. In grad school, uh, I don't remember coursework in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> she yeah. locked it all out. So, yeah. I mean, it's mostly what you're producing in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys mostly do coursework during the first year, right? Of yeah. Grad school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Depending on the program, some programs have tons of coursework. Huh. Um, like neuroscience is a really coursework heavy one. Immuno two. Others don't have as much coursework. Mm-hmm. You can just get right to working in the lab which is nice one thing is like that grad school requires a lot of self-motivation and then kind of mm. he's nice thing when i transitioned back to clinic was my schedule was just laid out for me so i just had to show up it was at 5 a.m but i just had to show up and then the days go by really quickly and before you know it you're on the next clerkship mm-hmm. it's just like bam 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 anything it's very structured you need, everything you need to know is readily available in various learning formats you just have to do what they tell you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to miss that freedom of academia, actually. Like, like that's one of the things that I don't like as much about clerkships is that they mm-hmm. tell you when to show up and you show up then. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I've really enjoyed having a couple of really free electives because I've gotten a ton of my own work done because like, I just keep starting all these projects and stuff. But I think mm-hmm. at some point, um, and it may vary from residency to residency i think at some point during your residency you can oh yeah sort of explore um other aspects of your your career yeah a lot of them have research blocks um i think mine has like a quality improvement project that you're required to do which i'm actually kind of i i like that idea so um yeah and there are definitely residencies and probably careers that are like more supportive of doing your own individual work without going all the way into MD PhD because I know I've said I like considered doing MD PhD decided I didn't like bench work quite enough but I do like mm-hmm. you don't have to do it uh, you don't have to do it in lab a traditional science really you can I do feel it like in, almost like, everybody does no, yeah, I, I <laughs> came in like planning epi- to do it in epidemiology yeah. oh, huh. you can do it in anthropology I've known mm. some people do that too little um, too late <laughs> I'm gone I'm out of here <laughs> Yeah. That's, good to, know, that's, good, that's <laughs> good to know though. That's good to know though, because my impression was just that like everybody did it in a wet lab, and I was like, well, this is like I like I liked working in a lab, but not that much for six years. Not yeah. for not for that long. <laughs> so yeah, our 
Amy, where where have you heard of people doing it in anthropology? Because that's really thought provoking. That's pretty nifty. Uh, I don't Lean's remember where. Oh, I know. You can do it. I know. No, never. Right I love that. PhD in anthropology. Yeah. Um, cool. And I know some have done it in like history too, like medical history or something. Yeah. Oh, I think I was gonna say. Cool. I think I think here like you can do that. They op- they, keep, they have it open to anything. I think it just is like uh, institution specific whether or not they'll let uh, like allow you to to do that. Hmm. Um, yeah, we cool. have kind of a cool medical history deal here. There's like a like a little um, like special library up on the top, the tip yeah, top the, of the library. The John mm-hmm. Martin Rare Book. Yeah, room. it's the coolest room ever. If you want to go look at some, you know, medieval med- medical texts, they'll uh, they'll let yeah. you they'll let you paw around in it. It's super cool, and there's like a history of medicine society that has more people than I expected it to have, honestly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that puts on cool presentations sometimes. Yeah. And... There was a recent one about um, people curing themselves of the disease by like manipulating the trigeminal nerve. Oh god. And it, I couldn't make it, but it sounded really interesting. To I really want to go to the Frankenstein. They're doing one on, on Frankenstein. Yeah. That oh. sounds cool. Yeah. That did sound cool. Uh, so yeah, just all kinds of weird stuff. I don't know. Medical history is great. Yeah. Well, Meldor, I'm glad you called in to gloat. I uh, mean, you know, inform us uh, <laughs> of, your, uh, of your impending uh, big start of medical school at Kansas. I Let was us... I was born in Wichita. Were you? Well, yeah. good for you. I don't remember it. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Let us know. Keep us know. Keep us informed. On That's your what I was told. Yes. <laughs> this week, I learned about a program called Hip Hop Stroke. It's designed to address the lack of stroke awareness among economically disadvantaged minority children and their parents. This week, research published in American Heart Association journal Stroke found that uh, hip hop stroke dramatically improved awareness among fourth through sixth graders and their parents. Is it is it good hip hop? So it must be good hip hop for no one. With I don't know. I, I don't think I can. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of hip hop. I'm not sure that I can evaluate it properly. <laughs> I do have a clip Fair. here. Let's play. <laughs> yes. I forgot to read this article, so. No, if he don't sound right, then he's doing the show. Sway when he walks, then he's doing the show. Stir when he's soft, then he's doing the show. Call 911, cause it ain't no joke. Now, ass for the face, and ass for the arms. Ass for the speech, and tears for the time. Time to do what? Call 911. Time to do what? Call 911. Ass for the face, and ass for the arms. That was uh, Doug E. Fresh. They should do that for alcohol poisoning and then play it at yeah, actual right. clubs. Right. <laughs> like, I, that was pretty I good. Say, I, would, I would dance to that. I, I have to know. say, it was kind. It's kind of catchy. It is kind of catchy. Um, it's That's probably, like production quality. Yeah. Music. Yeah. Especially well, that was, for like kids, you know, like it's not going to have the lyrics of like adult hip hop. But right. yeah. I feel like that that seems pretty reasonable. And like fourth to sixth graders, like they're not too cool yet. Like, <laughs> like high schoolers are like, oh, that's lib. Whatever. Yeah, right? <laughs> lib. Uh, it's part of a three-hour multimedia program. That's a good idea. Uh, which uh, increased optimal stroke knowledge from just 2% of kids to 57% after the program. Oh, we're going to have hella wow. neurologists out there. Yeah. Three months later, 24% of the children retain that knowledge. It's a hell of a lot better than 2%. So Yeah. Before the intervention, only 3% of parents could ID stroke symptoms, but wow. 20% could do so afterwards, and 17% retain that knowledge three huh. months later. That's awesome. That is it, awesome. In fact, during the study, four children put into practice what they learned by calling 911 for a real-life stroke. Oh, my God. Including one whose parents suggested that they wait and see what happened, and who said, screw that, Mom, and called <laughs> anyway. Yay! I love that child. 
I love that child. Uh, what a good child. So I thought that. Yeah, I thought that was. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, uh, they they attribute the success to its uh, you know sort of culturally tailored presentation, which means you know I okay. guess rap. I think music well, in general, though, you retain it because yeah. you can remember yeah, the lyrics better. Yeah, you're the word. I don't know. But you can think yeah. of so many like poorly done. Oh, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, like hell. Really, <laughs> yes. you, I mean, just poorly done like PSA style, yeah. uh, you know, public awareness campaigns where you're just like, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's I, true. I feel like the key is to actually because this could have been done. And I mean, maybe it is, but like, I don't know a ton about hip hop, but that sounds like passable to me. Yeah. Well, um, but but like. I feel like you have to get people who are actually from the community that you're targeting yeah. to evaluate your public awareness anything. Right. Because, mm -hmm. like, people can run in from all over the place with all these great ideas and maybe none of them apply to that community and everybody's just going to be like, oh, my God, this is so lame. Yeah. yeah. Like, you have to get people from the community to tell you what they want to work on because that's what they're going to be open to actually learning about. And then also, like how to approach that and like have them evaluate things before you go public with them because otherwise you're just gonna look dumb yeah well i agree with that yeah no there's been a huge push in the last i don't know five ten years in the public health world for uh -huh. community-based participatory, participatory research or cvpr and it's all like you go to the community and you might think you want to study something but it's all based on what they really want to do and yeah um really asking them like what their community needs and what they'll respond to and yeah. Um, I think it can be done well and done not so well, but I think the fact that like they're moving towards that is is a good thing. Yeah. yeah, it seems like you could spend a ton of money finding the best solution to a problem, but if you don't tailor it in a way that people will actually implement the yeah. solution, then it's basically for nothing. Also, it's yeah. a lot cheaper to just ask people. Like most yeah. of the time, if you ask in good faith, people will 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 respond. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. There was actually a really interesting podcast recently. I think it was Hidden Brain talking about gun violence and homicide as a disease. Mm. And then like using software that's actually used in hospitals to track like the spread of communicable diseases. Mm. Um, yeah. Using that to figure out like what are the factors that spread gun violence in communities? And it was brilliant. And they were talking about like the risk factors, quote unquote, um, listeners can't see me doing air quotes, but <laughs> like risk factors for who is like at the highest risk of committing, you know, gun violence or being a victim of gun violence and how that culture spreads. And so, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with you guys. That's cool. Well, I know this may come as a shock. We'll move on to the next topic. I, I know this may come as a shock, but some are saying that President number 45 has named an unqualified person to head the CDC. You could have just stopped at has named an unqualified person. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Robert yeah. Redfield was the principal investigator on some HIV, re HIV research in the 1990s for the army. Back then, um, you got to keep in mind in this story, back then there was intense pressure to come up with an HIV vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's hard to remember now, but um, at the time, an AIDS diagnosis was a death sentence. It often killed patients in months. Which still is if you don't have proper access to treatment. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Redfield presided over trials of a vaccine at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. The data in that child, the child, the what? data in that trial. Uh, <laughs> the one child they tested this on. <laughs> poor child. The Army acknowledged in 1994 the data was inaccurate, but it did not consider it a result of misconduct. One critic, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Craig Hendricks, 
reported to his superiors back then that he couldn't replicate the results from Redfield's trial. After a meeting in which Redfield acknowledged overstating the promise of his study, Hendricks thought the matter was resolved, but Redfield later um, used that um, data to make claims about his work at a conference. And so, you know, blah, blah, blah. The point is... Um, so in the theme of hiring the most like cartoonishly unqualified people <laughs> for the positions that they're being appointed to, well, this kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, well, here's the here's the rub about this one. Um, otherwise, Redfield has been actually a kind of respected HIV AIDS doctor, and he's on the faculty of University of Maryland School of Medicine, oversees a clinical program that treats 6,000 patients there. Um, apparently, he's, you know, sort of done a lot of good. It's worth mm. saying that a lot of people who do bad things aren't 100% terrible people. Well, we're not saying, I'm not saying no, no, he's no, a I bad person. Yeah. I know you're not. I think it's a, just what a lot of people's minds jump a to. A risky context to put this in. I mean, clearly he's done a good job in the med school he's on faculty on. Trust him, I assume that they hired him. But the CDC is always in like just a challenging place in convincing the public to trust them. And there's a long history from, I mean, not so much recent history, but older history where they've done things which maybe should not have been done. Like the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Was the CDC study. behind that? Yeah. No. Yeah. It was the public, and the public health, health service. service. Yeah. yeah. Up through yeah. the 70s. And so there's seventy kind of going on. that. Yeah background there and so i think because of that you you have to have a higher level of uh scrutiny like, like a higher bar that yeah. you need to meet for that kind of stuff and it's just i don't know trying to get the public to trust them that vaccines actually matter and they're not going to hurt your child and so when you have just the tiniest hint of some sort of like questionable behavior even if it's been a long time and you've shown it i think it's a the, not the best place to to do that mm. From the perspective of our research experienced people, um, how do you get such bad data without misconduct? I think it is misconduct. Well, I don't, I mean... Well, this one probably is, right? It's hard to, I, I don't think we know for sure, as in... I mean, I think that's why the peer review process is so important, mm. because you need to have others... Um, evaluating your work. I mean, sometimes you're just so absorbed in something that you're not necessarily seeing like all the places where holes could be punched into it. Or is yeah, that? sure, yeah. we'll go with that. Um, sometimes yeah, sloppiness, I think. But but then hopefully peer review would catch that. But I mean, wait, are we suggesting that it's misconduct because the results couldn't be replicated, or because he misrepresented? I'm the saying the misrepresentation of the right. data later. Yeah, sure. Um, that is misconduct. Yeah, I mean, that was that was after the army uh, basically and after he admitted in a meeting with the army um, that, uh, you know, he acknowledged overstating the promise of his study. So, you know, he acknowledged that it was an overstatement and then he went on to do it again. So, And, you know, some of that could have been optimism on his part. But again, That's I true. think as an object, you know, in the in science, we need to try to be as objective as we can. Mm -hmm. And while we have hope that the work we're doing will lead into something else, we can't jump to that point until, you know, we get there. We have to work with the, what we have. It must be hard when you get, you know, a, a result that is encouraging in any way to not be like, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, you can do that. You can celebrate. Yeah. But you yeah. just, so I mean, one thing that I kind of noticed that um, 
uh, like people that are scientifically trained, like I will always say this suggests that or this demonstrates mm. that mm-hmm. um, other people like in medicine that don't, don't necessarily have a like scientific background will say this proves mm. and like in, in grad school, like you never say proves. Nothing ever proves anything. That's an invitation no. to get pimped yeah. on your data. Um, and I, a lot of MDs that give presentations will will say that, or they'll say to prove my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't go out to like prove that you're right. You you have a hypothesis and to explore. To support my hypothesis. Well, to explore or definitively, to, you're trying to disprove your yeah. hypothesis. Uh, and then if you but, can't, then, um, then you so so little them. things like that. Um, yeah. So so I think that. It's part of kind of ingrained in us in our training is that we should try to approach it as objectively there's possible. A, there's a strong sense of humility, I think, in the research community that that would greatly benefit the medical community to be, well, I would say we actually, are I take that back. I take it back. No, the medical community can be pretty humble, but I agree We're that there. Yeah. <laughs> but um the point that Amy's making about how you have you have to always acknowledge in any statements that you make about your work that there's there's always an element of doubt. And it's true, like using the word suggest or hints at or implies, but never like definitively means X is a strong indication of like, yeah, a, an understanding in the community that like you can have tons of proof, but it's never like unless you yourself well, you know. not just that. I mean, so in, a, in experiments are very controlled environments. So just because something definitively works in one setting doesn't necessarily mean you can extrapolate it out mm-hmm. yeah. to, to other things. Which um, is why we have all the different phases of clinical trials. Something, a lot of things work great in Petri dishes or test tubes. And then mm-hmm. humans are complicated. This, I start using this sort of language in my personal life, you know, like. It kind of annoys well, people. Christine, <laughs> honey. My data suggests that I did do that thing you asked me to do. <laughs> that mustard stain on your shirt yes. suggests that you ate all of the hot dogs <laughs> without me. Just yeah, I feel like she'll come back right at you with, with the same kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think she's going to put up with that. She's too, she's too smart She's going to get you. <laughs> uh, Shortcoat Eric Sneeders passed on an article this week about the booming business of outpatient surgery centers and the apparent lack of transparency and conflicts of interest they may be they may be mm. avoiding dealing with um to put it somewhat charitably oh i don't think we have any surgical people here this week and so, it's not talking about hospital based let's the, yeah, speculate yeah. these are centers that do routine surgical procedures like colonoscopies and tonsillectomies mm-hmm. and for 50 years now have been sort of seen as a lower cost alternative for um these uh, you know minor procedures surgery is okay. never minor seems like a nice idea uh doc but the problem is one problem is that doctors can legally recommend that their patients go to surgery centers that they themselves own this is mm. permitted mm. um mm-hmm. and that can mean that the physicians make money and that's kind of a conflict of interest uh the usa I mean, that's t- kind of what all surgeons do though right they're just like you need surgery like come to me and get surgery no because you don't get in at the university, you don't get paid on a per procedure. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess that is how they used to do but things, in like but not in a non-academic setting. I think a lot of them still do get paid on a per procedure basis, right? don't they? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, in a partnership between USA Today and Kaiser Health News, reporters used federal and state records laws to open records laws to 
gather inspection records, complaint reports, autopsies, emergency medical service documents, and medical records. So I think we can tell we're dealing with a not very transparent situation here, um, where they discovered that um, 260 patients have died since 2013 after routine operations at surgery centers across Ooh. the U.S. I don't know that that's a huge number. Because surgery is a risky proposition. Out of how many? What kind of That's, routine surgeries are we talking? What does um, routine refer well, to? Well, this is this is part of it because they're moving towards riskier procedures at this point. Ah. Sure. The problem is is that these these centers aren't hospitals and they're not equipped often to deal with emergencies. So, for instance, if your patient codes, you call nine one one. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think part of the issue with because in the U.S., we kind of are dealing with healthcare as if it's a consumer product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when normally when we buy consumer products, we look at reviews and we we kind of have, you Shop know, we, we are informed. Mm -hmm. There is no way to obtain like, you know, what's this physician's percent success rate mm -hmm. for this surgery? Like there that data is not available. You can't so exactly can rely we... on a Yelp review for a surgery. Right. I mean, it's just not. Also, that only tells you so much because like surgeons who are willing to take on riskier surgeries or like people in worse condition are going to like their record might look worse. That's true. But actually, they're wonderful surgeons and that's why they're taking on these really difficult cases. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's really difficult to tell even by that. Some examples from the article um, of ill-equipped centers include, uh, there's a center in California which had empty oxygen tanks. Uh, another in Arkansas- That's just lazy. Right. Another in Arkansas treating children um, that they didn't, they didn't have a pediatric tracheotomy set on hand. Lazy. Another without defibrillator pads. Lazy. Yes. Mm. So, two years ago, a, a kid in, a 12-year-old in Clive, Iowa died after a tonsillectomy and <gasps> adenoidectomy after his heart stopped during in the procedure, one EMT oh. told state inspectors that she couldn't find anyone in charge of the resuscitation. I think That's there's- so sad. Yeah. That's bad. And when she asked, no one had that, like no one replied. That's so negligent. Uh, That's so preventable. Yeah. And they're taking on, as I said, they're taking on riskier surgeries like operations on the upper spine, which I gather can have respiratory complications if, you know, that not feels, that's, that's, or paralysis. That feels yeah. like it shouldn't be an, out, an outpatient procedure. <laughs> At well, all, period. As we seek to control costs uh, in medicine, we must be idiots. I don't. Like, I don't know. Don't turn down that scream. It it needs to hurt the listeners as much as it hurts me. <laughs> There's so many better ways to do that than providing worse care. Yeah. <laughs> like when? At which point in time did these centers start emerging? Did you say? It says 50 years ago. Um, oh. They became. The, the first one was open. I don't remember. There are a was, lot of them. They're in for. town here. Yeah, Have they gotten worse in, town, like, in quality? What's the... No, like, I mean, I, I, think it, I mean, it's just... They're practice. just like for-profit little centers, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. private practice things. Yeah, I don't mm -hmm. think anybody's saying that these places might not have a role. It's just that because... There's nothing new, I'm saying. Yeah. Sure. So but I because, think... they're, because they're um, somewhat opaque, because there are some conflicts mm -hmm. of interest, because there are... You know some lapses in you know uh, uh emergency yeah. care and because they're just separated from hospitals yeah. when things go wrong it's a problem but yeah i mean they can't For those people who yeah. live through the procedure it's, it's probably fine. great it's probably yeah. more convenient right because you were ushered right in and you didn't have this big hospital bureaucracy and yeah. it's like the lady that's outside the hotel in uh in lawrence kansas who 
who who watched us putting in the car seat and you'll have this experience someday <laughs> watched us putting in the car seat and she was like back in my day we never had car seats and all and all our children lived the ones who didn't die <laughs> exactly you only heard from the ones that lived yeah yeah um this is, i wish there was a way <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna oh man i wish there was a way to increase oversight without increasing or like improve oversight without necessarily increasing paperwork because paperwork is a scourge paperwork mm. is the devil and it's a huge part of why a lot of doctors are burning out so much because you don't have any time to work with patients you just sit at your desk and write notes all day like that's how terrible do have, how do you have but i'm not sure yeah but i think that's something we need to work on is like how do we keep proper oversight and right. keep proper regulations on people without just flooding them so they can't do anything right. technology i think that technology like like I, in the labs we scan things to keep track of that has been using and things like that i'm optimistic it's, it's I'm, a systems level problem and I, yeah i think it's solvable but people have to actually do it i'm waiting for the day paperwork. when they have uh, ai scribes that you know, sort of come oh around. Oh my god, that'll be great! Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> can I just? Can I, feel I like just... it's gonna happen. That'd be cool. Actually, no, I don't know because you, you mean like for get... dictations? Yeah, I think for we record they, keeping for, uh, for in pathology we we have transitioned over to a dragon. Oh, yeah, I was and say it's a lot and it uh, auto fills in with our voice. Oh. It's not it's not great, perfect, but yeah. it's. It's not like you're recording a tape that somebody listens to and types out later. It's not like AI, though, either. Like, AI would sit in the room with you and, like, the computer would type your note as you interview the patient, and it would hmm. be badass. But then we would have to get into, like, robot rights discussions. <laughs> once, no, once you have an AI that intelligent, like, you have to start worrying whether it's sentient or not. And, like, if it's sentient, then, like, are we abusing it? Which Of all people... <sighs> I'm not sure I'm qualified David. to talk about sentience. We don't actually, uh, never mind. We don't really care if things are sentient. We will happily exploit them That's regardless right. of <laughs> whether it's clear or not. Right. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say thank you for having me on today. Oh. If, if you were a dedicated podcast listener, you might remember me from like a year ago. Um, yeah. But she was also among the first podcasters. Oh, right. Short right, podcast. right. It's cool that that's what I thought you were going to say. Oh, no. Way yeah, back no. in 2010. That's yeah. <laughs> true. It's cool that this has been around long enough that people who like listen to the podcast are now going to like come to school or like, yeah. now coming to school and like being on the podcast. Yeah, like, that's pretty cool. And, and, and to get back to Meldor, we're pretty serious. I'm pretty serious Meldor. about encouraging you to, uh, you know, start a show uh, where you are. It doesn't have to be officially sanctioned by your university and in fact it might be even more fun if it weren't if you start an instagram and make your name meldor i'll follow you yeah <laughs> is that a real name no oh. <laughs> bummer but uh, it's pretty she, cool she did leave her her name but then she immediately said that she didn't want to be named on the podcast and that's I'm like, fair. oh i'm glad i'm paying attention to your, <laughs> to your instructions i'm glad i listened happy to friday, all of it everyone yeah happy friday thanks and yes. for, for links to some of the topics on today's show visit the sh shows this episode show notes at the shortcode.com but for now, we're done. Lisa, Amy. Yes. Tanime, who's no longer here. Aww. Aline, Casey. Yes. Thank you for uh, taking the time to hang out with me this week. And thank you, listeners, for making us part of your week. If you like what you heard today, it would be real nice if you'd leave us a review on, app, on the Apple Podcasts app. Reviews help us come to the attention of other listeners who might benefit from our show. <laughs> if you don't <laughs> like what you heard today, <laughs> let us know why and we'll talk about that. Or if you have a suggestion for something we should talk about or, or seek barely informed, sleep-deprived advice, you can send those things to the shortcodes at gmail.com just like Lavender Angel Blood Poison did for today's show. <laughs> Thanks again, Lavender Angel Blood Poison. 
Or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT, just like Meldor did. This show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Thank you.